I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University, who basically had Christmas last week, as we'll find out for people in his field. Chris, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So what did we get last week? We're going to go real deep dive into this, but what did we get last week? What numbers were released last week? And we'll get into why this is really, really significant. Yeah, absolutely. So so last week, the United States Census Bureau finally, on uh, August 12th, which I think not coincidentally happens to be my birthday, they released the census data down to the block level. So this is kind of the building blocks to make up uh, redistricting. So before we knew the kind of broad strokes, we knew how many people lived in each state. We didn't know where they lived. We didn't know if they lived in West Asheville or if they happened to live in Fairview. We didn't know if they were in Jackson County or in Clay County. But now we know that those kind of micro level distinctions. So this information now, we're going to get into what it says, but this information now, what is it going to get used for going forward? Yeah, a lot of different purposes, but uh, the big one, the the clear uh, leader story is me used for redistricting. So in order to redistrict, we have to know how many people live, not just in the state as a whole, but in each sort of micro level place. And so what we do is we put these data together and then draw lines over them, assuming that we're going to have the same number of people in each district. If it's a congressional district, it has to be exactly the same number of people. If it's a general assembly district, it has to be within 5%, plus or minus 5% of the same number of people. So there's different rules based on the general assembly or based on Congress, but the bottom line is we carve up the state into a whole lot of different districts. And again, just to reflect what this looks at, you have statewide, you have county numbers, but then you say block levels. What does that mean? That's within each county. To explain to us what blocks mean. Yeah, absolutely. So think of it almost in terms of a city block. Um, And so in rural areas, it may not look like a city block, um, but the same idea is at play here. So these are just really small, granular level details about who lives where, what their race is, um, all sorts of different characteristics about them. But for redistricting, the keys are, again, how many people, where they are, and what is their race. And again, just think of these in terms of a city block. It's a very, very similar concept. So a lot, at least the headlines that came out the first day or so when these numbers had come out would have been the population loss in rural areas and the gains in urban areas. So let's talk about that first statewide. What did North Carolina see and did it fit that pattern? Yeah, it did fit that pattern. So we saw, of course, growth, which we knew we were going to have, right? So we knew a few months ago that North Carolina will get a 14th congressional seat representing significant population change. Um, But again, we didn't know exactly how that would be spread throughout the state. So 51 counties in North Carolina lost population. 49 counties in North Carolina gained population. So right around 50-50, we have 100 counties, of course, in the state of North Carolina. And so uh, in general, yes, urban areas grew, rural areas declined. So um, for example, Wake County, Mecklenburg County, and New Hanover County, which is where Wilmington is, those saw really pretty massive uh, population growth. Rural counties, for the most part, saw declines. Here in Western North Carolina, though, we saw uh, growth even in some of our very rural counties. So Buncombe was the biggest gainer, about 13% growth in Buncombe County. Macon, though, was about 9%. Henderson County, right around 9% as well. Jackson County, right at around 7%. So not just the urban centers, but also some of our rural areas also saw population increases. This affects statewide. Obviously, the, the additional congressional seat will we'll, we'll focus on that. Has this made it any clear where that seat's going to go and where we're going to see the growth? Because obviously, 
know in our conversations before this, kept thinking, will it be a Charlotte area district? Will it be a Triangle area district? These numbers did show probably which way it's going because we now have a new most populous county in the, in the state. We do have a new most populous county in the state. That's right. So Mecklenburg and Wake have kind of gone back and forth and back and forth um, on that sort of title, if you will, uh, over time. Um, but I don't know that we know exactly where it's going to go. I mean, so one take is that, sure, maybe it'll go to the most populous um, uh, area of the state, but you can essentially create it wherever you would like to create it. And so there's going to be a lot of attention on this 14th. It is really important because there probably won't be an incumbent there. Um, but that also, I think, obscures the importance of what's happening elsewhere in the state. If you just slap a district down anywhere in the state, whether that's Mecklenburg County or Wake County, or even, uh, you know, put it down in somewhere near Watauga County if you wanted to, you still have to adjust the rest of the counties or the rest of the districts, excuse me, as a result of that. So it's like dropping, you know, a really big boulder in the middle of a lake. Yeah, it matters where it hits, but those, uh, those waves are going to kind of ripple throughout the entire lake. So now we'll come to the 11th district, which encompasses Western North Carolina. It's probably not going to see any big changes or noticeable changes in how the district is drawn. But let's look at those population changes that you said and how you said this actually explain it too. how Western North Carolina bucked the national trend. Yeah, that's right. So I think we did bump the, the national trend and the statewide trend and that many of our rural counties gained. Again, that doesn't mean every rural county gained in population. So Transylvania lost just a little. Um, Dowell, Mitchell, Rutherford, Polk, and Graham all declined. Everything else gained at least some. So if you look at the 11th congressional district as a whole, we right now sit about 35,000 people over the ideal population. So there's a lot of different ways to cut that. There's a lot of different ways to create the district. We don't know. It's certainly based on what other districts do. But one possibility might be removing Avery and Mitchell counties, which are currently in our district. Uh, that wouldn't get you all the way there, but it would get you very, very close. So I would expect to see some changes in the 11th, but not a massive change and certainly nothing that would uh, create kind of a wholesale redesign of the district or its political future. So you said Buncombe County saw the biggest growth in the 11th. Where did it see the growth? It saw the growth in most of the county. I mean, obviously, the city of Asheville um, saw, in general, um, a, a very big uh, increase. But Southern Buncombe County saw increases. Really, throughout most of Buncombe County, there were increases. Um, there were a couple of these very small blocks that didn't see an increase kind of towards the eastern part of the county. But uh, those were the exception and not the rule. I find it interesting, though, the New Hanover County, where Wilmington is, I think Asheville and Wilmington get compared against each other a lot because in, I know in market not size and number, they were always, I think they were right next to each other, actually. Um, anything that the data says as to why New, Wilmington, New Hanover and Wilmington grew faster than Buncombe and Nashville? You know, it's a great question. I don't know exactly why. Maybe people are loving the beach instead of the mountains more lately. You know, I don't know. I think that's that could be part of it. Um, but also remember, Henderson County grew a fair bit too, right? About 9% growth. So although New Hanover grew more than Buncombe, um, Henderson also had some some pretty large increases. Jackson had a decent size increase. Again, even Macon. So the region as a whole increased, not as much as they did over on the coast, but they still did uh, did see an increase. So Henderson seeing the growth there, was that a lot of a shift from Asheville or just people who weren't? Uh, I think a lot of people might immediately say, were these people who aren't able to afford to live in Asheville or Buncombe County, are they going to Henderson County? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we don't have a great answer right now. So the data are getting uh, better. They're more granular than they used to be, but we don't know all of the details yet. So we have some ideas about race. We know the numbers of people pretty well to a very small geographic level. We don't know things about age uh, in the way that we will later on. So um, at this point, it's still a little bit of a question mark as to who these people are and certainly why they made the decisions, the migration decisions that they did. Interesting is you you bring up age. I think that leads into the next bit of talking about the growth in Jackson and Macon counties and where it happened. Where did it happen? Yeah, so Jackson and Macon counties, again, both saw pretty significant uh, increases, particularly for rural counties, and it tended to happen on the southern borders, kind of near the South Carolina line. Really, the Cashers Highlands area, if you know that area at all, that's tended to see the largest increases. There were some big increases other places. Certainly, Cullowee grew um, a fair bit uh, in Jackson County, and there were some other spots around Macon. But that southern border, the Cashers Highlands area, saw a really large increase. And that means that these counties, while in North Carolina, are kind of becoming an Atlanta suburb exurb. Explain that for us. Yeah, exactly. So if you, uh, you know, I don't know that you even need a social scientist for this one. If you live in Atlanta and you want to uh, to escape Atlanta and head to the mountains, the first nice place you might be able to stop is Cashers and Highlands. And so I think we're seeing a lot of that. South Carolina as well. Cashers, of course, runs right up by that South Carolina line. So I think you're seeing uh, a lot of second home folks from Atlanta. I think you're seeing some exurb folks from Atlanta, but also that Cashers area down into South Carolina, down towards the Clemson area, you're also seeing a good bit of growth. So it's not just North Carolina folks, it's also folks from other places as well. We'll get into the political impact about what or what potential political impact they may have here in, in just a moment. But I do want to talk a bit about some of the places that did lose. I believe in your analysis, Graham lost the most, but that might not be as alarming as everyone wants to say. Explain that for us. Yeah, that's right. So Graham did have a, a very big decline, about 9.4% um, change. Um, but Look, these are small places. Graham, there's not a whole lot of people who live in Graham County. So although that is certainly a big decline, uh, we're talking about a county um, uh, with very, very few people. So if you adjust for kind of the base numbers that are in each of these counties, it doesn't look nearly as alarming as that 9.4% might lead you to believe. Okay, now getting into some of the other bits of what these numbers mean, what the population means, and how that we look at cover how how the 11th district is going to be going forward um buncombe saw the biggest growth it is the biggest democratic it's the only democratic stronghold within the district so is that really going to change at least when we look at next year's election for congress has the population growth is that really going to change that this is a very safe republican district you know, it's too early to know for sure. Of course, we need to wait for these new maps to come out, but uh, it's unlikely that it's going to be a massive shift. So uh, a couple things I think folks should remember. One, this is a measurement update. It's not a reality update, right? So in other words, these people all lived in the 11th Congressional District as it's currently uh, conceived during the 2020 election, right? We did the census and we did the... Um, the election about the same time. So the only real political impacts we would see in the short run are from redistricting. And again, this is a change. The 11th will shift. We don't know exactly how, but it is unlikely uh, to shift in a really big way, again, with just about 35,000 people over population. I think what we wanted to go more, if you're looking to, again, to some of the more rural areas, uh, Cullowee, Highlands, Cashers gaining population, um, 
does that, I mean, it's coming from people who probably were may not have been in North Carolina. So what's the political impact, I guess, of that? If these areas are becoming more of an Atlanta or Greenville, Clemson uh, suburb exurb, what's sort of the political implications for North Carolina, a different state, that these this population growth may bring? Yeah, I think in the long run, it's probably a little bit better for the Democratic Party. Um, but again, that's in the really long run because these folks, again, were living here during the last election. So, um, so yes, they do. They're more likely to be out of state. If you're more likely to be out of state, you're more likely to be an unaffiliated voter, and you're also more likely to be an unaffiliated voter who leans towards the Democratic Party. Um, but they were here last time. So um, I wouldn't expect to see, in terms of statewide elections, I wouldn't expect to see really any short-term effect from the census, just because it is a lagging indicator of what's already been happening. So let's look now at state legislative districts in Western North Carolina, saying that the 11th, the congressional district may not change them much, may lose some counties that are actually outside of the BPR listing area from that state legislative districts. Has this change, again, obviously very early on, but is this going to really make any big changes to the legislative districts, which obviously were already changed for the most recent election, but that was because of a lawsuit? That's right. So those were changed, or some of those were changed anyway, because of the lawsuit uh, after 2019. So I guess the first thing to to talk about state legislatures and why this might matter is this uh, this rule we have in North Carolina called the Stevenson Rule. Okay, so this is from a court case, the Stevenson Court ruling. And essentially what it says is that uh, if you can kind of imagine the state of North Carolina like a, like a big cake, uh, you then create pretty big slices. And those slices are all about the same size in terms of population. And then you draw up districts within each slice. So we call these the county clustering rule. And so the idea is uh, you want to have counties that are adjacent, that are near each other, uh, and that have the same number of population or that add up to the right number of folks. And then you put them together and then you draw lines within those clusters. And so what we're going to see is the clusters shift. Uh, in North, Western North Carolina, we're still trying to understand exactly where they're going to shift, but it seems very likely uh, that we will see some of these changes. For example, Haywood County, which is currently um, tied in with Jackson County, will most likely uh, be, with, um, be with Madison County. So you're going to create kind of different bedfellows and then draw lines within those. So that Stevenson clustering, again, will be the very first thing that will shift. And then the General Assembly will draw lines within each one of these clusters. Interesting partnering that. That's the, the 118th district in uh, in Haywood and Jackson. That's been one outside of uh, really the most competitive district in Western North Carolina. From what you're saying there, I guess you said the lines on that could be changing, which obviously would change whether or not it remains the competitive district that it has been. That's right. Yeah. So this would be the 119. And yes, uh, you're exactly right. So we've seen uh, that be, you know, arguably the most competitive rural district in the state of North Carolina. And uh, we can certainly see some shifts in, in how that plays out. So I guess what folks should pay attention to is one, what do the county clusterings look like? and then pay attention later on to how the lines are drawn within each one of these county clusters. Because now we have the data. Um, let's look forward here again before we get more of the data, the, the more granular data, as you're saying. So what's next? Now there's already some hearings that they were the General Assembly, the people that are drawing the maps have been holding. So what's next with the drawing of the maps before we get into how that's going to affect next year? 
Yeah, so uh, that's right. So last week we saw again this kind of big data drop, this this uh, this Christmas present for uh, for data geeks everywhere. But we also at the same time had the General Assembly meeting uh, in this redistricting committee, and so this is where they set up the process essentially. They set up the rules or the criteria, and so the ones that they agreed to. Uh, one, they said they cannot use racial data or political data. So the um, political data wasn't very controversial. The racial data piece was very controversial. You had a lot of the Democratic legislators arguing that we should be able to use racial data to ensure that these lines meet the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Republicans are arguing that you should not be able to use that. The Republicans, of course, the General Assembly won the day. The political data was less controversial. uh, the Republicans were sort of leading with the non-use of political data. The Democrats tended to respond and say, we agree, but this does not guarantee that we won't have gerrymandered maps. So that was a little bit of the tension there. But again, nobody was really arguing to use political data. Um, they also used traditional standards like population equality, contiguity, compactness, respecting municipal borders and county borders. But the last kind of slightly more controversial one was about incumbency protection. And so the Republicans were arguing that they should have incumbency protection, that people shouldn't lose their jobs just because of the redistricting process unless they have to. And the Democrats were essentially arguing that by locking in incumbency protection, that you're locking in parts of the current map. So that was the tension there. Again, the Republicans won the day. So they've set up the rules. We have the basic data. Now they will um, collect some public input. Uh, it seems like there's likely to be spread throughout the state, various opportunities for folks to weigh in about how they think the line should look. And then the General Assembly will actually take to the mapping software and start drawing their own lines. Just to go back, incumbency protection, how does that show up in district maps? I think people hear the term, they'll know it. I know it from my time covering Maryland, a similarly gerrymandered state the last time we were going through this. Um, So what does incumbency protection look like in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So in practice, it looks like somebody's address on a map. So you can imagine if uh, if a, a General Assembly member lives at, uh, you know, 105 uh, Oak Street, then you'd see 105 Oak Street in Asheville, you know, that on a map. And then if somebody else lived at 200 uh, Pine Forest Trail, you wouldn't put those two people in the same district. You wouldn't what is known as double bunk those people so they wouldn't have to run against each other. You draw a line separating those folks. So the idea is, uh, I guess if you're cynical, you're gonna say this is a way to lock in the current maps. If you're more of an optimist, you might say, well, this makes sure that we don't break the relationship between legislators and their constituents. Timeline, when do maps need to be drawn and what does that, how does that affect when candidates have to file and when we're going to even have our primary next year? Because right now we don't know when we're going to have our primary next year in North Carolina. So what's a timeline you can give everyone here? Yeah, um, I'll give you a vague timeline, uh, which is uh, about the time the leaf lookers start coming to Western North Carolina when our hotels get even more full. That's about the time we should expect this to really heat up. So um, we... uh, Everything is dependent on when folks need to declare for office. So the idea is, of course, we're going to have these maps decided before folks declare for office. Now, if we think about something like Congress, it's not quite as important. 
We've already seen um, what I think a baker's dozen folks that have de declared they're going to run for the 11th congressional district. They can do that because there's no rule that says that you have to live in your congressional district. For the General Assembly, however, you do. So we're going to expect to see more and more folks declare for Congress, but these General Assembly seats, we're going to probably see a lot of folks wait until they know exactly where their district's going to be. How far ahead of time does the filing deadline have to be from the primary so that we might begin to get an idea when the primary may be next year? Right. Yeah. So there, there is a, kind of a statutory rule about that. From time to time, it does shift. Um, uh, but again, I think, uh, I believe we're talking about December, uh, roughly when the, the filing deadline should be coming around. There is an election this year. Uh, there will be municipal elections this year. What's on the ballot for this year, um, throughout the state and how that might have changed a little bit because of various factors, including the fact that the census data didn't come out, came out late and other various changes the general assembly made what's on the ballot this fall. Yeah. So there's, there's not a ton, but uh, but most people will have some sort of um, a local election on your ballot. So um, that does not mean every part of every county, but most counties do have elections that are on the ballot. These tend to be local offices, and these tend to be ones that were not subject to redistricting. So if it was any kind of a district election, determined by population, the General Assembly said, let's just kick those to 2022, essentially, and uh, and make sure that we don't have to have folks running for uh, districts that may not exist soon. So there's a smaller number in 2021 than usual, but they are critical. And so I would just say, even though they may not be the headline makers, if you do have the opportunity to vote for these, your vote will never mean more than it means in one of these off-year elections. So just to give one kind of very small example, in Silva, North Carolina, uh, in the last decade, there's been two off, two times where the, um, the local town board elections have been decided by a coin flip. So quite literally, one person showing up or not showing up determined the outcome of the election. So why does that matter? Well, the Silvertown Board has taken action on things like the Confederate monument that is on um, county property, and so they don't really like it. They've taken some other actions that some folks love and some folks don't love, and if one more person had showed up to vote, we could be seeing very different policy implications. So those are towns, municipalities, cities that are not subject to having to draw district lines like a county would. So essentially the towns and cities, their lines still exist no matter how many people live in them or not. So they're the ones that are on the ballot. That's right. As long as they are some sort of an at-large um, at large election. And also if they're ones that are decided on odd years. And so if you're confused, you should be. Uh, municipalities have all sorts of different rules in terms of whether they're on your elections or off your elections. And again, we've kind of switched them up this time, some of them, just because of this redistricting rule. There is um, certainly a lot of political controversy and there's pros and cons of having on-year and off-year elections. Um, off-year elections have a lot smaller voter turnout. It's a little bit easier. It's really a lot easier to sway these elections with a little bit of money. Some folks argue we should be moving them all to even-year elections, but there's a very good argument to the other side. 
that uh, this nationalization of American politics that we've seen would uh, be, you know, even exacerbated if we made that decision. Well, correct. Well, yet again, we've put off talking about actually 2022 elections until for another month. So we're already behind at least one month. We'll make it to September and we'll have you back on the porch next month to talk about that. But that's a lot to go through. And as always, much, much appreciated that you are able to do that for us. Chris Cooper, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Always enjoy the conversation.